but of the many that were engaged in studying the four divine abodes, these beautiful four emotions of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. In a sense, it's a pretty profound challenge to the culture and the normal attitudes that we have in the world. If we, if we can't find a way to relate in a beautiful and wholesome way, given the world we actually inhabit, then what's the point of a spiritual practice? The whole idea of training the mind or awakening would be to awaken to kind of skill that would be available no matter the particular conditions of our lives. So that's, in a sense, how we, as an aspiration at least, how we hold out these four emotions of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, that somehow they are available. And we don't need a different world or a different life circumstance. Well, if only my life were this way, then I could be kind, or then I could be compassionate. If only the suffering I was exposed to was just like this, well, then it would be easy for me to be compassionate. But when it's like this, I find it really difficult to be compassionate. So, to keep that in mind, and we'll just take a few minutes now. Um, in a moment, we'll do a, a more formal gratitude reflection. But just on our own, sitting in a relaxed way, just a sense of how we can discover or find for ourselves a basic friendliness, a basic kindness, forgiveness, a sense of care for this moment, for this life, for this mind and body. Another way of asking is, how might the mind now, how might the heart now relate in a beautiful, wholesome way? How might that be possible now? And we have some wisdom. So we can remember that part of what our life experience has taught us is in the different ways that we close ourselves off, in the different ways that we push away or grasp, lean forward. All of these strategies lead to afflictive mind states, heavy mind states, difficult mind states. In all the ways that we are willing to include, willing to be open, willing to be sensitive, willing to be touched by the experience of the moment. These movements, this, these ways of being are skillful. And they lead to wholesome and beautiful states of mind. 
So that's our hint for how to, in this moment, rest in beautiful or wholesome states. Is it possible for us to see in the mind, to see in the heart, something that's trustworthy, something that evokes a sense of, I guess we could say self-respect or inner confidence in the heart, in the mind? There's a wonderful line in Walt Whitman's poem, I think it's in Leaves of Grass, he says something like, I didn't know my heart contained so much goodness. Or I didn't know I contained so much goodness. I forget the exact line, something like that. And this can be the beginning of our gratitude practice. So we're doing a simple gratitude reflection for a few minutes. And maybe in some way right now you can be grateful for this mind and this heart. Grateful for the heart, the heart's capacity to be good, to be caring. Gratitude really is a confidence in life itself or confidence in the goodness of the heart itself. And a sense of this goodness, the sense of this goodness is, it's not something we created or, it's more of an underlying truth, this goodness. And we can appreciate that. We don't need to be afraid of this goodness. It's not that we're somehow deluded or in denial of what's difficult in the world or even what's difficult in our personality. But that doesn't in any way deny the goodness in the heart, the capacity to love, the capacity to appreciate what's beautiful and good, the capacity to forgive, We can even be grateful for, as imperfect as it's been, we can be grateful for how we've cared for our life over the years. Even as a youngster, we took care of this body and took care of this mind as best we could, given the habits and conditioning. And just reflect over your life all the little and big ways that you've cared for your life. Kept yourself out of danger as best you could, given circumstances. We can be grateful or appreciate the wisdom as it's operated in our lives, provided for some clarity, some guidance in difficult, confusing times. And you can just remind yourself 
I care about the goodness in this heart, or I care about the wisdom here in this heart, in this mind. I appreciate it. However imperfect it might be, wisdom is still a beautiful thing. And I'm very appreciative of any wisdom that has arisen in my life. Any goodness, any love that has arisen in my life is a cause for happiness, this appreciation of what's good. And we can appreciate the goodness in our own lives. And with practice, we can learn to appreciate the goodness in other people's lives, too. And that's really the practice of mudita, appreciative joy, which we'll do for a little bit now. So just allow somebody to come to mind, somebody that's easy to care about, like a niece or a nephew, even a pet, a good friend. Generally, it's nice to start with somebody not that complicated. And bring to mind somebody in particular that you recognize that something good is happening in their life. They've gotten a new job. They have a new lover. They have a good routine. They've had some success, found some happiness. So bring somebody to mind and just reflecting on their happiness. Not afraid to recognize the happiness of another person, the success of another person. Really let the mind dwell like you can imagine their happiness, imagining Imagine their happy face. Even if it's quite ordinary, the happiness that they're experiencing or limited in some ways, it doesn't matter. Happiness is happiness. It's a nice thing when people are happy. And to help the heart open and be close to this happiness you're imagining or remembering, You could use a phrase, something like, I care about your happiness, or your happiness makes me happy. Your success makes me happy. Then to send out a wish. Even though we know most people, when they experience something good in their lives, we know it's temporary, but still we can have this wish. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. Of course, we understand that it probably will end. But the wish in the heart is that this happiness of this person continue and increase and never end. Just notice how good it feels to have that wish. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. 
Just continue on your own, holding somebody in your heart. Feel the heart center as you remember this particular person and the goodness or the happiness in your life. And when it feels right, just repeat the phrase, may your happiness continue, may it increase, may it never end. And you can name their hat specifically if it's clear to you. May your wholesome relationship continue and increase and never end. Even though I know that things change, they come and go, still my heart appreciates your happiness the goodness in your life now. So may this goodness continue and increase. May it never end. Rely on the phrases to help direct the mind in this particular way. Because you know, the mind will go whatever it's in the habit of going. So now we're aiming it in the direction of appreciative joy by remembering somebody whose happiness we're aware of, however minor it might be. And we're letting it touch the heart, being sensitive to another person's happiness or well-being. And sending out this simple, beautiful wish, may your happiness continue, may it increase, may it never end. And feel free to go on to another person, another being when you're ready. Always start where it's easy, when you feel a strong flow of loving kindness and appreciative joy, then you can go to more challenging people or people that are more neutral in your life. 
remember their happiness, their success, and then repeat the phrases for them. Don't be shy. Really believe in the power of these simple good wishes you're sending out, you're radiating out. It's not a small thing to appreciate the happiness of another. You can open to neutral people or even difficult people in your lives if it feels safe. And to realize that even the difficult people in your life, they experience happiness in their own way, their own times, and that you can care about this happiness. Just because they're difficult, just because they're imperfect, doesn't mean that we can't appreciate what's good in their life, what's beautiful in their life.
or if it feels strong, you can challenge yourself and is there anybody that you can't feel, can't appreciate some goodness in their life? Even people that are in difficult places, there may be something about their life which you can appreciate, something that's good. For example, their fearlessness in the face of difficulty, or their willingness to accept, or their resiliency, or their willingness to be honest about their pain, so that this appreciation isn't just for people who have classical happy circumstances, but we can appreciate the goodness of people's hearts, no matter their circumstances. May your goodness continue, may it increase, may it never end.
we can even recognize the goodness of all the people in this room. Just appreciating the goodness that got us here tonight, this interest in cultivating love and wholesome states in this heart and mind. May all the goodness of our intentions, all the goodness and beauty in our hearts, may all of this continue. May it increase and may it never end. this love, all this goodness, be part, be seen as part of the great river of wholesomeness, past, present, and future. May our goodness, the goodness in our lives, join with the goodness in all lives, present, past, and future. And may this continue and increase and never end. I care about the goodness in our hearts. Wisdom, patience, the capacity to forgive, the capacity to begin again, capacity to see clearly. I care about all of this goodness. I care about love and kindness. May all of this beauty, all of this goodness continue in our hearts. May it increase. May it never end. Stretch out your legs so you feel comfortable. And could you uh, turn on that first, on the top, the first one closest to you? Yeah, about halfway or so. That looks good, thanks. Could even say inherent capacity to appreciate what's good. 
In the tradition, it's sometimes seen as the most difficult of these four wholesome emotions. And you probably recognize that, like when we're feeling put upon, or when we feel cheated by life, it's not easy for us to appreciate what's good in others and ourselves. Because the really loud thing is, yeah, but what about me? You know, what about success for me or happiness for me? And you see how appreciative joy is really inviting the mind to step outside of that box, not to get lost in that dark and confusing place where, because our life hasn't, has anybody's life been perfect? Our lives have not been perfect. And so each of us, we have our own things we can point to that don't feel good enough, doesn't feel complete, could have been better, it's not really been fair. And depending on our particular circumstances and personalities, that can be huge. You know, the limitations of our life and the feelings of betrayal and shame and not being recognized, they can become the biggest thing. And the real tragedy is it closes us off from the natural, immeasurable joy of appreciation. This is the thing about appreciating what's good is uh, there's no end to it. There's a... Uh, I remember when I first... I never really did much sailing uh, on a boat, maybe just a few times, but I remember when I first understood the basic concept of sailing, and there's something exhilarating about it, and I don't know if you know this, but, you know, you have a sailboat, there's a little rudder that keeps it from completely getting blown over, and let's say it wants to go in this direction, but the wind is sort of blowing this way. Well, you know, the sails are sort of sitting up here, and the wind pushes against the sail. There's a force, but because of the rudder, the only direction the boat can go is this way. And uh, so it doesn't matter how fast the boat is going. That force coming from the side is always providing an additional force for, forward. Do you understand that? I know the sailors will understand that, but most of you probably aren't sailors. So the interesting thing is about love or about any of these beautiful emotions that we're learning to recognize and set free. It's not even so much we're developing them, because that's it's not really the right view about them. Like, I'm putting together the feeling of compassion or kindness or appreciative joy. It's more that we're setting it loose, setting it free. And uh, the thing is, the more we reflect, the more we recognize it, it's like that wind against the sail. It doesn't matter how strong the joy is in the heart or how powerful the compassion is right now for us or how deep and resonant basic friendliness or kindness is for us right now. If we recognize it, it will grow. So it might be really faint and not very resonant or it might be the most we've ever felt, the kindness, the most kindness we've ever felt. But if we simply recognize it, we're adding to it. It continues to expand. There really, there actually isn't an end to kindness. Like, where do you get so kind, you just can't be any more kind? Or so compassionate, you just can't be more compassionate? Or so appreciative, so equanimous, you can't be more of that? It doesn't really work that way. And this is the interesting thing. 
And you might even notice in your practice life, maybe even tonight when you're doing the appreciative joy practice, mudita, you know, you're there and maybe you really start able to connect with somebody's happiness or something good that's happening in their life, and you actually do wish that that happiness, even though you know it's not going to continue, you wish that it continues, you wish that it increases, you wish that it never ends, even though you know perfectly well it will end. But the wish is true. I can wish that your happiness continue and never end, knowing that it probably will end, maybe it's already ended, but it doesn't really prevent me from wishing that. And uh, we can see that that way of being, that way of relating, that way of appreciating or having compassion if we're seeing the suffering in others or basic friendliness, that it is immeasurable. And that's why these four emotions are called the four immeasurable sometimes. Or another way that word used to describe them in the text, in the Buddhist text, sometimes gets translated as boundless. These are boundless qualities. Every morning at 6.30 we do this chant. I might have mentioned this. And maybe, did I send it out? Uh, if not, I'll send it out uh, when I send out some more information about mudita and equanimity. But uh, there's a chant that was repeated many, many times in the Buddhist discourse. We sometimes refer to it as the Four Quarters chant. And uh, I think the technical title is something like Suffusion with the Divine Abidings. And the, it begins this way for each of the four beautiful emotions. I will abide pervading one quarter with the quality of loving kindness. In the same way, the second, the third, the fourth, above, below, and all around, to all as, if, as to myself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, and measurable, without hostility, without ill will. So, sending out, relating, radiating, free of ill will, boundless, exalted, and measurable. So, this is what we're, you know, the whole point of the formal practices that we've been doing the last three weeks, and we'll do next week as well, is we want to develop our confidence that the heart actually, that these are available for us. They're not, and it, people feel like it's a little sentimental or stilted because we're doing all this work of remembering the phrase and remembering the person and feeling the heart as we do it. But it's really breaking through the crust that I mentioned maybe last week or maybe two weeks ago, that we have this aversive crust this sort of defensive stance in life where we're afraid to loosen the heart up to be more open and uh, flowing. You know, one of the qualities of all four of these emotions is it's a movement. That's what makes it immeasurable. This upwelling of the heart, it just doesn't stop. It just wants to keep moving outward, coming from some inexhaustible source out flowing out. And that movement, that flow outward or welling up or whatever you want to call it, it feels really good because it's the opposite heart feeling, energetic feeling than being tight or constricted. 
that movement of love, the movement of compassion, the movement of appreciation, the movement of equanimity, it's a movement. It's, and there's, the thing about a movement, it doesn't really have boundaries. Like when we're feeling tight and needy and in some sort of self-centered drama, then we feel really small. But when the sort of psychological state is a state of movement and upwelling, it really literally feels boundless. It doesn't, movement doesn't really have shape. When you're just aware of movement, it doesn't have shape. It's not like the ship is moving or the this is moving. If you're just aware of the movement of love as a movement, as a flow, the mind is, uh, enters what we call a boundless state, an expanded boundless state. And in a sense, in those moments, there's a temporary, at least a temporary freedom from the constricted, narrow, self-centered states that we normally inhabit through most of our lives. I'll read a little bit from... Did I bring it? I guess I didn't bring it up. I think I mentioned in the first week the email... uh, a really good source is Sharon Salzberg's book on loving kindness. It's called Loving Kindness, a Revolutionary Art of Happiness. And in that book, she has a chapter for each of these four divine abodes, as well as other related topics, generosity. And it's a really wonderful manual, something you can use for the rest of your life. You can read it dozens of times and read back, look at paragraphs that were useful a long time ago, bring it back. And it really will help you develop this practice formally and also informally through your days. So I encourage it. And in that book, she says something like, excuse me, in defining mudita, appreciative joy, as the mind's deliverance of gladness. Because remember, we're interested in being free, you know, a freely happy, freely loving, freely compassionate being. We're interested in being free in all conditions. So the mind deliverance of happiness means, is there a way for us to be free or happy when we're in the company of other people's happiness? Or are we going to fall into envy? Or are we going to fall into, you know, even a worse reaction, you know, like hating them? Or feeling, hating ourselves for not being successful, not being happy? And you know how that is. It's like, there it is. Even a good friend of ours who's just great, in a great place. And how do we feel sometimes? I mean, it's really, it can be really hard to bear what that can bring up on us. I have personally found the mudita practice really liberating. I think precisely because just by conditioning I have a, you know, a heavy dose of stinginess. And, uh, I don't know, maybe partly because I was the middle child or who knows for the, the roots, the psychological roots, but, um, you know, just feeling neglected or, you know, and I think part of it, too, is those of us who tend to be real caretakers, I sort of that have that imprint in my mind, too, real parental ways that aren't always nice to be around, but that's how it is. And the, the, one of the side effects of being a really parental caretaker type is underneath all that caretaking, 
Nobody notices me, or no one's taking care of me, you know. <laughs> so you get, the, you get the idea. And it's so powerful when I do this practice, because I have to step outside of that, no matter how subtle it is, because, you know, I'm smart enough not to let it be painfully obvious to myself. But it doesn't mean it's not there. You know, it's just repressed or suppressed in some way, lurking in the shadows, waiting for ways. You know, I just, you know, because I've been practicing mindfulness a long time, I see how it just leaks out in subtle ways, you know, how someone will ask how I am, and I'll basically say I'm fine, but, you know, there's just a way of saying it that it's sort of uh, leaking a little sort of neediness or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with being needy, but what's unhealthy is the kind of not being clear about what you're doing when we're doing it. But when I do mudita, mudita practice, this appreciative joy practice, it's like I realize no matter what my life is, how perfect or imperfect it is, how much love I'm getting, how little love I'm getting, there's nothing stopping this heart from appreciating what's beautiful. Except the idea that, what about me? It's just that idea. If I could just go beyond that idea, there's all this happiness available. And I think I mentioned this last week, right at the end, kind of a teaser quote from the Dalai Lama, who once said, you know, mudita practice, appreciative joy practice, increases your odds for happiness six billion to one. Because somebody is really happy. There are children right now who are really happy and playing. Now, we have this imagination that normally gets us in trouble. Well, we could use our imagination to remember. We could recall happy children. Because guaranteed, there are happy children. Even in really, in poverty or in war zones, there are moments when children are happy, even in those really difficult places. And we can appreciate that. We can appreciate the people who are falling in love, even though from our own experience we found a lot of pain and all that stuff. Still, however temporary, ephemeral that good feeling is, it's a good feeling. And we can appreciate the people who are experiencing that right now. Or the people who are comfortable. The people who are well-fed. The people who are in safe places. You know, all the squirrels in the little nests in the trees with a lot of nuts stored up. They can only remember where they put them all. <laughs> so, there are so many things. I mean, where is the end? There are just so many things we can appreciate. We can see somebody with a nice sweater and we can appreciate that they've got nice clothes. You know, how wonderful that you somehow found that nice sweater. May it make you warm. May, you, may it last a long time. May it be a good friend for you. May you always find beautiful and functional clothes in your life. I mean, that sounds silly, but the feeling isn't silly. That's a, that feels really good to have that wish, as opposed to, you know, seeing somebody with nice clothes and just thinking, you know... <laughs> Or, yeah, anybody could look good if they had money, you know, sort of that attitude. Or whatever we might think, you know, you probably have rich parents who buy you nice things. Or a sugar daddy or sugar mama who partner with a lot of money that treats you just the way I should be treated. <laughs> and it's such a powerful contrast between stinginess 
and appreciation. I mean, when you really see it in that vivid way, it just doesn't make sense to be cultivating stinginess, which is what we do so much of the day. We are cultivating a sense of neediness, a sense of not having enough, a sense of discontentedness. (laughs) We wonder why we feel so discontented, so alienated, so like our life is so insignificant or limited or not good enough, because we've been practicing it for so long. And of course, you know, the economy, the marketers, that's what they're telling us, you know, that we don't have enough, that we don't look good enough, that we need, you know, this, or we need that to be happy, to be cool, to be special. And we buy into it, because, you know, they're... Marketers, they, they know how to find that basic instability, that basic uneasiness, insecurity, and then they tell us why we're insecure. Well, because our cell phone is four years old, or our, you know, we don't have the new hairstyle. So I keep, things keep changing for exactly that reason, because we're never, never satisfied, so it has to change so that there's this hope. Well, then I'll do this. If I can just get caught up to the things that make people happy, then I'll be happy. But of course that never changes. But it's a real, it's almost like a, what is, it's a, a flipping. So when we're trying to gather for ourselves the things we need to be happy, that's one approach. We're never going to get caught up, we're never going to really get there. And besides it's really stressful to be gathering all these things that we think will make us happy. But immediately, once we start appreciating the beauty, the goodness, already we feel good because instead of being the one who needs this, so we we're, we're defined by the sense of Mark, you know, me, who needs this. If only that, then I'll be happy. And so we've established ourselves as somebody who's not happy, who needs that to be happy. But when we're in the movement of appreciation, it's like immediately we're boundless. We're not bound by that limited notion, I need this in order to be happy. We've literally stepped outside of that. So it's a revolution in our view. And this is the thing that you'll learn. If you develop mindfulness in your life, if you just start paying attention in a very honest way with a balanced mind, aware of your mind as it actually is. One of the ways that we talk about anatta, this teaching, the Buddhist teachings on the impersonal or conditional nature of the mind, of this, you know, that there isn't a, a permanent mark or self. There are many selves, you know. So who we are, it really depends on the particular psychology we're living out of in that moment. Is it a really constricted point of view or a really constricted story? Or is it an expanded, moving experience that we're living out of? And so we really, if we're mindful, we really see all the possibilities. I can be a suffering human being. I can be a beautiful, loving, free human being, free in the loving human being. And many other And even in today, if we just could carefully go back through the day, we'd see that we were so many different people, each 
kind of particular shape of the psychology of the causes and conditions in the mind, it was its own reality until it became another reality. And, and so we're in this place that part of the delusion that we have to go beyond is whatever state of mind we're in, there's part of the mind that keeps going, yep, that's me. So we take it personally. And it's, that is what kind of limits. So when we give ourselves to like an appreciative joy practice, there's really no room for thinking, yep, that's me. It's called the near enemy. I mean, the obvious opposite to appreciative joy is something like envy, right? But there's, there are more subtle qualities of mind that can look like appreciative joy that aren't appreciative joy. And sometimes it's described as exuberance. So we're around somebody's happiness or remembering somebody's success in life and it makes us really happy and we get really exuberant. And what happens is we create a self-story. I'm so happy that you're happy. But we're not in the movement of appreciation we're in the identity of being somebody who's so appreciative. I bet you, I remember, and I bet most of you remember times when something good happened to you, and one of your friends or a sibling, you know, I'm so happy for your marriage, or for your falling in love, or for your promotion, or whatever it is. And it's almost like you could pick up that like they're in their own trip. Like, they're trying to extract some happiness from your happiness by kind of, like a, a sympathetic, uh, you know, high, get high from your, your happiness. But it's really a neediness. That's what you feel from that. It's that they're needy. They need your happiness. So, mudita, that looks like mudita, appreciative joy. That looks like they're really happy because of your happiness. But it's just the opposite. Because... Their appreciation isn't setting them free. It's reinforcing their sense of need. There's somebody who needs something. If I just hang out with your happiness, I'll be happy. So what's really going on here is I don't feel happy, and I need your happiness to make me happy. You see, that's not the same as your happiness is making me happy. I'm letting your happiness remind the heart, remind the mind that I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy for your happiness. I'm, I'm willing to be moved by your suffering. I'm willing to let things be. That's equanimity. So these four qualities of loving kindness and compassion. This week we're talking about appreciative joy. Next week, the last week, we'll talk about equanimity. They're really ways to go from a set stance in the moment to a movement. And you, you really recognize this. The more you practice, you really get the difference when, psychologically speaking, you're in a set place. You know, I'm a person, and this is how it is, and I'm trying to do this for me, or, you know, however you might define your psychological state or place in the world in that moment. But when we allow the heart to open to these beautiful emotions... They're characterized by the movement itself. The upwelling of basic friendliness, that's metta. The upwelling of compassion, that's uh, um, karuna. 
and the upwelling of appreciative joy or mudita, and the upwelling of equanimity, which is upeka. So there, those are the four Pali words for those states. And the more that we train the mind to attune to that movement, the more we feel the exalted, expanded, immeasurable, immeasurable, boundless quality of that emotion. That actually it doesn't run out. Like I was saying a few minutes ago, where would that run out? Where would we run out of the capacity to appreciate? There's always something to appreciate. We can even start appreciating the capacity to appreciate. And that would be okay, you know, to be sitting there appreciating. I've, I've been brought to mind, some of you know Debbie Norgard and her husband Joe. Debbie's been our longtime bookkeeper for ten years or so. She has a very serious... Uh, her cancer has come back, and it was aggressive cancer to begin with, and when it comes back, it's not at all a good prognosis. And, you know, she's got all these effects now from it. She really can't use her left arm. This all has happened very quickly in the last few months. And it's, of course, very sad. But I thought, for whatever reason, they came to mind. I spent part of the day with Debbie today, so she's on my mind. And, uh, but... I didn't want to do compassion practice. And it wasn't hard to do appreciative joy because I can see so many beautiful things when I think about Debbie. You know, there's some really beautiful qualities of mind that I see when I think of her and I think of her and her husband Joe and I think about the love they have for each other and the way that they can take care of each other in this really, really difficult time. And so instead of moving towards paying attention to the suffering and letting my heart respond to the very real suffering, it was really beautiful to reflect on what's beautiful in her life right now, even though it's about as bad as it gets for human beings. But that doesn't mean we can't appreciate what's beautiful and really feel like uh, enlivened by that. And this is the thing about these four emotions. They're ways to feel enlivened by life. They're ways for us to get close to the way it is. Like, how else are we going to be close to suffering? Because that shows up a lot for us if we don't have this capacity for compassion. How else are we going to be able to show up for joy if we don't have this capacity for appreciative joy? How else are we going to show up when things are confusing if we don't have the capacity for equanimity? Right, equanimity is how we allow everything to move when we don't know what the heck's going on <laughs> or whether it's good or bad what's going on. But we can be equanimous and that's, that state of equanimity is that state of just letting things be. Like that's its own kind of love. Like I don't need to know whether this is good or bad. I'm willing to be close. I'm willing to be intimate. I'm willing to be enlivened even when I'm confused about what the heck's going on and what I should be doing. Or whether what you're doing is good or bad. We can be confused, of course, in so many different ways. But it doesn't mean we have to pull back or get inside of a box just because we don't understand what's going on. Just because it's ambiguous or we're confused or it's foggy. I had a teacher I studied in Burma once for five months. And uh, one of the teachers kept making this point, you know, when... It's foggy outside. It's not a mistake. It's not like a betrayal. It's foggy. It should be clear. And it's the same thing in our practice when we're living our life. And sometimes it's just foggy, psychologically speaking. It's not a mistake. It's not like 
we can be very clear, we can be very loving, even when things are confusing and foggy. In the same way, we can appreciate foggy weather. You know, it has its own charm. It can be loved and appreciated just like a clear sky can, or a nice rain can, or a beautiful snowstorm can. And the other great thing about uh, mudita practice is you start to notice, because it's, it's so counter to our usual way of operating in the world, you start noticing the usual way of operating in the world, like the habits of judging. Just will start standing out, because in contrast to appreciating others and having gratitude for our own lives, here we are judging or comparing or feeling stingy. You know, all the different constricted states would just, in contrast, would just stand out in living color. And that contrast is so important. It's like, do I want to be cultivating this, or do I want to be cultivating this? When I'm lying there on my deathbed, do I want a mind, a heart, that has been cultivated over the years, stingy, where stinginess has been cultivated over the years? Like, is that what I want dominating my mind when I'm dying? Stinginess, envy, or do I want appreciation and kindness and compassion? And it's nice to have a provocative image like that because it's really easy to be complacent. You know, especially when our lives are relatively working relatively well, we think, well, I'll do that kind of work later. You know, we keep putting it off. Everything seems more important than, you know, actively cultivating beautiful states of mind. And the nice thing about these four practices that we've been learning, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, we can do it at any time. I mean, that's the thing. It's like it doesn't matter. One of those emotions is going to be appropriate in the moment. And actually, instead of like figuring out what emotion should be appropriate, just get close to what's happening. Just practice being less defended, more open in the moment. And you'll notice that emotion wanting to arise there, like compassion just starts to appear, or friendliness starts to appear, or appreciative joy starts to appear. Equanimity is just there, waiting to be recognized. So the key is more about recognizing these qualities. Often we have to start to recognize them. They're just a little seed. They're not fully developed, not fully formed. But we recognize that seed, and it's like, that's like watering it. You know, if we just attend to it, it tends to grow. And even when we're doing the formal practice like we did tonight, where we're repeating the phrase, may your happiness continue, may it increase, may it never end, it's, that's just a more formal way of watering it and allowing it to expand. It's not, we're not making it expand. But we're using the phrases to keep the attention with the emotion, with the beautiful emotion. Because when we pay attention to beautiful emotions, the tendency is to expand. When we pay attention to afflictive states, unskillful emotions, they tend to fall apart. Anger doesn't make sense when it's seen clearly with a balanced mind. It just doesn't make sense, so it begins to fall apart. Because the mind isn't going to feed an insane emotional pattern. We just feed it when we're not paying attention and we don't realize how destructive it is. Nobody consciously dwells in envy. 
we do it semi-unconsciously. Because it only makes sense when we're not paying attention. Same with anger, same with jealousy, or any of the afflictive states of mind. They only make sense when we're not really paying attention. When we pay attention in a balanced way, the mind abandons them. It stops feeding that fire. And eventually the fire goes out. It may not go out very quickly if it has a lot of momentum. You know, if we've been angry all day, and then finally we see how unwholesome it is, and we stop feeding anger... Well, there's a big blaze going. It's not going to go out immediately. We'll feel the anger reverberating, especially in the body, for a while, even though we're not feeding it anymore. We're not dwelling on those uh, images that kind of trigger the angry thoughts. So we have to be patient. And it's the same thing, you know, once we start to reflect with appreciative joy, appreciative joy, it may not just bloom into a beautiful flower in three seconds. There may be Take trust that we have to break through. You know, just a lot of stinginess, a lot of feelings of not getting enough in my life. And so we say the phrase, and then the, the sort of established habit energy counters it. Well, yeah, but what about me? And we don't say yes or no to that. We just notice that there is that reactivity, and then we bring our mind back. Yeah, but there is this little child here who seems to be very happy playing in the mud. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. You know, or seeing a little kid playing in the snow, or even better, you know, the, the younger dogs that go out and just love to burrow in the snow and just find it so amazing that there's all this white stuff, cold white stuff around. And it doesn't matter how much debt we're in or how much pain in our relationships we're in, that's beautiful. Can we let it in? We're not saying that none of this other stuff is true. We're just saying that that's beautiful. And it's possible to let it in and to let the heart respond. Oh, I care about this goodness, this beauty. So we have 35 minutes left. I thought we'd do a little practice at the end. But I wanted to save a little bit more time. And it would be appropriate to bring up any questions or any sharings about any of the three practices we've done over the last three weeks. So, loving-kindness practice, compassion practice, and tonight, appreciative joy practice. So, any questions, any experiences that you've had, difficulties you've had that you want to share with the group. And it's nice to say your name if you decide to speak up. So, what have you been learning? Yeah.
And so, yeah, and this is one of the easiest ways to touch joy and rapture. And the thing is, joy is such an essential part of the awakening process. There's really no way, you know, in the basic description of freedom that Buddha gave is, you know, we have to see what we're not seeing. And so then the question is, well, how do we see what we're not seeing? Well, often the missing ingredient for clarity in our lives is joy. When we feel oppressed by life, that heaviness that we're often kind of dragging around with us, it actually skews or distorts our awareness. So we keep missing what's really going on. So that means we're misperceiving what's really going on. And then our actions in the world, our choices in the world... They come out of that misperception, the not seeing clearly. And, it, and then life doesn't work for us. Like that whole tendency to act in a self-centered way, it's coming because the world we're seeing, it makes sense. But because we're not really seeing correctly, because we're burdened, weighed down. And so we're misperceiving, so self-centeredness makes sense. And we live out of self-centeredness, and life delivers pain and suffering. And that just weighs us down. So we continue to misperceive. Because of that misperception, it it feels like we're living in this self-centered world. We keep acting from that point of view. So joy is not just a nice thing. It's more than just a nice experience. It's an essential part of awakening. There's no way for the mind to see clearly unless it's had the healing of joy. We have to feel good. So a lot of people think Buddhism is a grim thing. You know, you sit still and you just the body hurts and you're just holding your body still and you're focusing on your breath and what a grim thing. You don't talk to people. But it's really important to understand this is a path of developing states of beautiful states of mind because there's no waking up without beautiful states of mind. We have to feel happy, inner happiness in order for the mind to come into balance. When the mind is really happy, it's content, right? When we feel that inner contentedness, I don't need anything, I'm just happy to be. Well, that's a perfect mind to see things as they are because the mind doesn't have an agenda. I'm not a hungry animal looking for a meal or a mate or, you know, get out of danger. I'm a contented animal. So the mind is balanced and it's just going to see things as they actually are. And then things will start to make sense. How we act will come out of that balance, that clarity. So, one of the ways traditionally to find joy is when we recognize how wholesome these teachings are, to appreciate the teachings and to appreciate the community that is practicing these. Not in an exclusive way like, hey, we're cool, we're the Buddhists or something like that. Which people do, you know, they create, it's amazing how uh, creative we are about creating suffering. (laughs) I mean, there's no faster way to create suffering than to kind of create a sense of exclusion, like being better than. I mean, how many times in our relationships with our partners or good friends do we either make ourselves better than them or worse than them and then suffer accordingly? All the time. Even in Buddhism, the Buddha talked about even when we make ourselves the same, like we have this fixed idea, we're the same. We're about the same. 
even that is a rigid idea that causes stress in the mind. We don't need to define ourselves as being better than, worse than, or the same as others. It's really, we think we do. You know, it's maybe part of that genetic pack mentality, you know, that we've got to know who's the top dog and who's the bottom dog. And, but actually, we don't have to buy into that. I mean, that mind might do it, but we don't have to get identified with those patterns in the mind. Yeah, see you next. Yeah. What was that last sentence she said? Yeah. 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 That's a great question, Jennifer. So in case you didn't hear she said she was doing the compassion practice for someone who's passed away, and it was a little confusing, um, you know, may you suffering and or whatever, what you would say. And so generally, with all four of the practices, generally we don't work with people who have died, not because we shouldn't care about people who have died, but because it's confusing. How do we bring them to mind? Because we know they're not their body anymore. Whatever they are, they're not that body, because it's been burnt or it's fallen apart or it's whatever it is, but it's not the person anymore. You know, they're not that body. So generally we don't do these practices because initially with these practices it really helps to have a felt sense or a visual image because we're we're changing the tendency of our mind. So it's nice to have a more concrete thing to help for that change. But we do there are ways to relate to people who pass away. One of the classic ways in this tradition at least is to do acts of generosity or even acts of austerity, like, you know, say, you know, I'm going to get up every morning and sit, but I'm going to offer the goodness, whatever goodness there happens to be in me getting up in the morning and sitting for 45 minutes. Whatever that goodness is, I'm going to happily share it with my mother who passed away. And then we, we make that resolve in our minds. May this goodness be offered, you know, land, whatever, wherever that mind stream is, may it somehow find that mind stream and be a support for whatever's next for that person. So, and whatever it might be, whether it's some act that you're doing or some act of generosity, like somebody might contribute money, even to a place like, well, my mom died, she died in April. One of the things I did is I sent uh, $500 to a monastery in California where I know some people where there's some Buddhist monks and um, some nuns there. And, you know, with the thought, whatever goodness comes from that money and the support for that, what I consider a wholesome organization and wholesome things that those people are doing, whatever goodness, may it somehow support my mom. Wherever that mind stream goes, unfolds, whatever that is, that great mystery, may it be supported. And the other thing I did a lot right at her death is I reflected on my own life and, you know, just my own interest in being, living in a wholesome way and being a good person and setting in motion good things. And I just intentionally, you know, like resolving that that goodness support my mom. 
And then I generally go and all beings. So I don't make it just for my mom, but I start with my mom, spend time with that, and then, of course, include all beings. And we'll do, maybe we'll do a little of this. We call it sharing the merit or sharing the blessings of our lives. And you can do it every night before you go to bed. This is a great thing to do before you go to bed. Because you're doing two things. First, you're reflecting on your day. You can go back further if you want. And you're just bringing to mind all the good things you've done. Little acts of generosity, little acts of patience, acts of forgiveness. Just anything you've done that you remember, you feel as being wholesome. So you're kind of bringing all those wonderful things to mind. That itself is a really good, wholesome task. And then you're just getting a sense of the force, the momentum of goodness in your lives, which is just healthy to do. And then you're giving that away. And that's a good thing, too. There's sort of this redundancy, like in the Buddhist list, you know, they talk about sources of merit, like how you can create good karma, is a way to say it. And one of the ways you can create good karma for yourself is give away your good karma. <laughs> you see how that just keeps like an exponential function for those who know mathematics, right? It just keeps building. There's no end. You know, so then, like, I give away my good karma. I did some good things today. Whatever that goodness is, I give it away. That gives me more good things, you know, and I'll give that away. And before long, there's just a tremendous goodness that we keep giving away. It doesn't run out. You know, it's like, oh, I notice it sometimes in my mind. It's like, where I'm kind of giving away. It's like, oh, don't I want to hold on to some of that? And just that, that's such a funny notion, like, like, there's not enough goodness to go around. Because that's the mind states, those mind states we've been reinforced, this sort of scarcity mentality. Because in a material world, a level rather, there is a scarcity. You know, there's only so much food, so much this, so much that. But that's not the case with this inner goodness. There's no limit to that. Yeah. Robert. These little, like, instead of that just being a fun experience to watch something, make it, uh, just be interested in the, the beautiful quality in the heart. Because what you'll notice, if you attune to that, if you notice that as you're watching a video like that, it will become much bigger. And it's interesting, like, uh, you, maybe you even notice this, Robert, we resist the goodness. It feels like too much, like it's going to break the heart. So we really have to practice like letting it move because that's what that goodness wants to do. It wants to move. This is true too with compassion. If you're there with somebody who's suffering and you're really meeting their suffering in a balanced way, 
and it really starts getting intense, but in a good way, and we can get frightened by the intensity, the bigness of the movement in the heart. So with practice, we learn to trust that big movement, the intensity of the feeling. It won't, it may feel like it's breaking the heart, but the breaking is a good thing, not a bad thing. When we, when the relationship is wholesome, like when it's not a self-centered drama, then you can really trust letting it break the heart, letting that energy move, even if that the breaking feeling is more that the heart's in the habit of being tight or being held, that now we're realizing the natural movement of the heart. And we're, you know, I think I gave that example. If you hold your fist like this for 10 or 15 minutes and then try to open it, it's actually painful. Or you sit like this, you know, for an hour, especially when you, for those of you who aren't in your mid-50s yet or older, you know, it's really hard to undo it and stand up. You gotta, you gotta give yourself some time. <laughs> yeah, this. That she chose Judy and the family around Judy, even from a distance, you could just feel that somehow you guys had great instincts about, and and they were really fighting tenaciously for her life. It's not like, you know, they had resolved for her death, but they, the whole thing was held in love. You could just really feel it in the gathering and just looking at the website and meeting the people. And that's really, I mean... We know this. I mean, we know it intellectually, at least, that love is trustworthy. But even though we know love is trustworthy, like, how much time do we give it? (laughs) It's really the great irony, you know, that it's like it feels good, it's trustworthy, it never harms people. And yet, why aren't we becoming sort of great devotees of love and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity? This is really what this, you know, this course is about, and this, generally this path of awakening is about understanding wholesome states and unwholesome states. You could say that's basic wisdom from a Buddhist point of view. Are you able to recognize the difference between a state of mind that's under the influence of some constricted, self-centered view and a, a point of view, a view, a mind state that's not under that influence. It's under the influence of what we call right view, which is a view that's not fixed. Right view is a non-fixed view. Wrong view is a fixed view. It could be fixed that I'm no good, or you're no good, or I want this, or I don't want that. 
but it's fixed in time and space. Right view isn't fixed. So how, what is right view? Well, love is right view because it's not a fixed state. Like when we're loving or appreciating something, the mind isn't fixed. It's a movement. It's an unfolding or an opening. And you really, with practice, you really, it's like night and day, you really see the difference. And you'll be able to ask yourself, out of kindness and compassion, is the mind fixed or unfixed? Is the heart fixed or unfixed? And if it's fixed, we don't hate it, we care about it all. My mind's tight, and I care about that. That's how we unfix it. It's not like we judge ourselves for having a tight or a narrow point of view, a narrow state of mind. We care about it. And then everything gets loose. And if we have an open state, we appreciate it. That's how it maintains its openness, its non-fixedness. We appreciate it. Wanting it to last turns an open state into a fixed state. Thinking that my open state is better than your open state <laughs> fixes it. So, how many times have we ruined a beautiful state of mind by wanting it to last or comparing it to somebody else's or any other number of ways? Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Nancy. Yeah, I've got your name. Pat. Um, I just wanted to um, comment on a couple of things that you had said to me last week. I was going to my dad's memorial service, and I 
But you know, when we when we find a way to get outside of like being in a fixed place, all kinds of creative things can happen. That what gets in the way of creativity in terms of just negotiating sticky situations like what you described is that people get established in fixed views. And when one person steps out of a fixed view, it's an invitation, like you said, for everybody to, at least in a moment, step out of their fixed views. And then amazing things can happen very quickly just because people have stepped out of fixed views. It doesn't take much time. Thanks so much for sharing that. Let's just end with sharing the merit, as uh, I think Jennifer was talking about. So we'll just sit comfortably. Just it would take about less than a minute. And this will be an example of what you could do at the end of the day. And you might even want to do it tonight so you kind of create a habit. So we'll take a few seconds, and we can even begin by remembering how wholesome it is to be here together taking this class. And appreciating our intention to practice and the practice we've done over the weeks. Instead of thinking about how we haven't practiced enough, we could just appreciate the practice we have done. And appreciating the goodness of our hearts, the love and the patience we've experienced, the capacity to forgive, to accept. And we can remember all the places of generosity in our lives, giving people our ear, listening, letting people in on the highway, little and big acts of generosity. May all this goodness in our lives support our parents, whether they have died or whether they're still alive. May the goodness in my lives, all the blessings in my lives be a cause for happiness for them. For all my loved ones, all my mentors and teachers, may they also receive the blessings of my life. May the goodness of my life in my life support all my friends, family, and all beings without exception. May I always live for the benefit of all beings. May this life be a cause for happiness and peace and freedom from suffering in my heart and in the world. And thanks so much, everyone, for being here tonight. It was really nice to practice together. So we have one more week, and as I mentioned, next week I'll talk a little bit more about equanimity. And I'll send out an email uh, within a day or so with a little bit more information for you, including the ten benefits that Nancy mentioned and the four quarters chant that I quoted from. Have a good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.